0: No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no
0: essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage.
2: Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Good evening, and uh, welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined today by my uh, co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing over there, Nathan?
0: Good, Clinton. Great to be with you.
2: Yeah, looking forward to our interview today. We have a special guest who is joining us, Patrick Lee, a pro-life philosopher. Now, Patrick Lee is the John N. and Jamie D. McAleer Professor of Bioethics and the Director of the Center for Bioethics at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is known nationally as a keynote speaker and author on contemporary ethics, especially on marriage and the value of human life. Lee received his BA in philosophy at University of Dallas, an MA in philosophy from Niagara University, and a PhD in philosophy from Marquette University. He taught philosophy at St. Francis Seminary in Milwaukee, 1978 to 1981, and University of St. Thomas in Houston, 1981 to 1992. He has taught philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville since 1992 and was appointed the director of the Center for Bioethics in 2008. Lee has spoken to the United States Catholic Bishops Workshop, has testified to the U.S. House of Representatives, and has lectured or debated ethical issues at Boston University, University of Illinois at Chicago, Baylor University, Fordham University, University of Notre Dame, and Princeton University. He is a member of the American Catholic Philosophical Association, the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, and the Institutional Ethics Committee at UPMC Mercy Hospital in Pittsburgh. He is on the advisory board of the National Lawyers Association. In 2006, he received the Cardinal Wright Award for Excellence in the Integration of Faith and Reason from the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. Lee is the author of three books, Abortion and Unborn Human Life, Body Self-Dualism and Contemporary Ethics and Politics with Robert P. George, and Conjugal Union, What Marriage Is and Why It Matters. He has written numerous articles and reviews in such publications as Bioethics, Philosophy, Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, and American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly. All this to say, Patrick Lee definitely
3: knows what he's talking about.
2: Pat, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thanks. Uh, Good to be here. Thank you for, for asking me.
2: Yeah, so yeah, we're recording the show live. We're going to be interacting with Pat for a little bit, and then we're, we'll open it up to callers. If there are no callers, then we'll continue on with our questions. If you have a question for Pat, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, the number is 646-668-8597 if you have a question for Patrick Lee. I'm I'm basically going to let uh, Nathan handle most of the interviewing, but uh, a question that I always answer or I always ask every uh, every person I have on my show, just uh, as a sort of uh, get-to-know-you kind of question, is how did you originally become pro-life?
3: Uh, well, I guess uh, I don't think I was ever not pro-life. I was brought up uh, Catholic and uh, to and uh, the, had the uh, received the, the uh, I think the common sense belief that every human being has an intrinsic uh, uh, worth that uh, we we must respect and uh that uh the human being comes to be uh from conception and uh or at conception and uh no matter how small that human being is he still is uh, uh intrinsically worthwhile so i always had that uh belief and then uh of course i, I go way back so i remember in 1970 in the in the, ni- in the late 1960s they began to, some states began to uh uh, allow abortion, some abortions, and uh, then and uh, so the issue came up at that time, and I was in high school at the time, and uh, I, uh, I you know, despite my doubting all sorts of other things about religion, I was kind of drifting away from my religion. I still saw that that was uh, that 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 that, uh, that teaching had to be true. That it was just grounded in fact. And then in nineteen seventy three when the when Roe v. Wade uh, uh threw out all of the uh state laws against abortion, uh mm-hmm. I, I I I saw that was uh that was, a, that was a, a terrible injustice and so uh uh so I've never uh so, so I've always been, been pro life, I guess, from, from baptism on, I guess.
2: <laughs> all right. So Nathan, uh you can go ahead and, and carry on. And I'll I'll just type in when I have a, a question or follow up.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh,
0: so kind of to follow up on that, uh, since you run the bioethics program at Franciscan University, a uh, question that comes up, um, question, personal question for me, but also um, I run the Students for Life chapter at the local university. And right. so a lot of students come up and they ask how can they continue their education in a meaningful way in regards to the pro-life issue, um, past their undergraduate work and to do larger work in bioethics
3: well I I think a a good a good uh, if if you if you're going on to the university then I think it's good to get a good university uh, pick out a good university I think that you can get good you can you can Get connected with some good teachers at different universities, but a good Catholic university or a good Christian university where uh, they're going to spend, you know, they're going to have a little bit of of time to go through these different issues and show them, show or, or discuss in detail how they're all interconnected is uh, a big big plus uh... so so i recommend going to a good catholic good catholic university if you're catholic or or a good christian university and uh, uh... because i think that does make a big difference it's uh... uh being able to uh... discuss these issues uh... at, at length and go through the different authors uh uh... both pro and con different work on 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 the pro life issue and on other kind of interconnected issues i think is uh is really worthwhile i think uh, is, is, and I, I began to think about it this way uh, especially in the last uh, several years or last few years when I began to think, well, maybe I should just go and uh, attach to a secular university and then maybe uh, you know not teach school not teach teach classes, but then uh, you know meet with the students there, and then i then i- realized that but i wouldn 't have the time to go through with them you know in several classes a, a week, so I recommend that uh at least to consider that uh, as a possibility uh, there are other yeah. there are other ways of of going on into pro life work also in terms of uh if, if one doesn 't go on to get a degree or teach uh there are other there are a lot of lot of different avenues of uh today nowadays with uh uh, the social media, the online things, the think tanks uh, there are a, a lot of uh, a lot of jobs that uh, na- that uh, did not exist uh, even 15, 20 years ago, for sure. Uh, that uh, uh, so, I think getting a good, uh, solid preparation in philosophy or even biology or theology and then also in the uh, specifically pro-life issues uh, and then seeing what what, what God uh, uh, maybe prepares for you later on I think is, uh, is worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Are there any universities that you would recommend uh, well,
3: the uh, there's one. There's one that's very good that I recommend is Franciscan University of Steubenville. Yeah, <laughs> words, I've, I've been teaching there since for 25 years, and uh, I think that's. Uh, I really. Uh, I, I'm very glad that I came up here 25 years ago when I when I came and I interviewed and I talked to the students and talked to the faculty and I said, I thought, okay, well, this is where I want my children coming to school, and I've been very happy. So, uh, I think it's uh, it's a good, it's a rigorous, uh, academically rigorous and uh, um and, and a good uh faith atmosphere uh, and good positive uh, enthusiastic uh, students uh, uh uh students enthusiastic for the faith and students who are who are uh, uh pro life and uh so there's a and and uh looking at all all these different issues and studying uh studying all the different works uh, both pro and con but uh with with a good good i think friendly atmosphere cool With that, I guess we could segue, since we're going to talk about
0: discussing and studying the issues, we could segue Mm -hmm. the discussion into your book that you've written specifically on the abortion issue. Uh, The title is Abortion and Unborn Human Life. Drew, give us a little backstory on it, how you came about to write the book.
3: Yeah, I I wrote that. The first edition came out in 96, and uh, I began writing some articles in the the early 90s, and uh, uh, or late 80s and early 90s, and then uh, came up with the idea that whether well, I should just put the put the book together. The to sort of there's a kind of connected argument there, and of course it's not all original. The argument obviously is not original with me, but I was trying to trying to just go through sort of the 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 various steps in the basic argument, uh, the basic pro-life argument and to look at the major uh, challenges to that on, uh, by, by other philosophers and try to be fair with them, try to be, you know, go through step by step and try to be honest and, and fair about the arguments. And uh, so put, the, put it together, So I think it's about, I think it's five chapters, yeah, So, or depends on whether you... Count the introduction, I guess. But in any case, so so uh, and uh, came out in '96, and then we had a second edition in, in uh, 2010, so. and revised some things that uh, you know, updated some arguments and so forth.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very good succinct oh, summary of a lot of the arguments and a lot of good critiques of a lot of the arguments. We really encourage the listening audience to pick it up. So just to briefly talk about a lot of the issues that are brought up in the book, each chapter deals with a different issue. So, for example, the first chapter actually deals with the question, do unborn human beings become persons after birth? And so essentially answering the arguments, the slightly more radical arguments that are gaining traction in culture today. Well, first question would be, and maybe some in the audience who aren't pro-life might be wondering about this, why do we call them unborn human beings?
3: Well, the uh, I was trying to get, I, I wanted to just get a uh, uh, a term that wasn't question begging or or emotional at all, but uh, but I, but it but it's actually just very factual. Uh, so uh, we look at biology and we look at the facts and we know that uh, this is a uh, that just biology. We can know from the biological facts that uh, when when the sperm uh, penetrates the ovum. Uh, you get a new thing that's not, that's neither, after that penetration, that's neither, there's a, there's a fusion there, and, the, and what, what results is neither a uh, sperm nor an ovum anymore, now it repels further, it's not, it's not, it's obviously not a sperm, it's not, it's obviously not an ovum, because it's not an ovum, because it, it repels further fertilization, it uh, begins to uh, actively, uh, it begins uh uh, to organize itself and then a- and 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 uh, and grow by differentiation, or at least grow in the sense of multi- multiply the cells that it has in the next uh, in the next several days, and so it's a new thing. And so, in any case, uh, to the the biology shows us it's a new thing. It's also a human thing. It's also a whole human organism. Uh, it has all the internal resources needed to actively develop itself to the mature stage of a human being. So it already is a human organism. So the most factual descriptive term for it is that this is an unborn human being. So, so that was the, um, that was the, that was, that was why I wanted to use that term is just to avoid, uh, a, um, an emotional term. Uh, but, uh, but also just to stick to the facts there. Right.
2: Your first chapter here deals with uh, whether or not unborn human beings become persons after birth. Uh, I was kind of curious is there any uh, are there any plans to maybe do a third edition where you can uh, incorporate and talk about the the fairly recent article by uh, and Minerva
3: um yeah, I I have I don't have an active plan on that. I mean, I might do a third edition and then maybe add something about the law and 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 add, you know, and and, and maybe update some of these other articles. I think the the article on the uh, after what's what they called afterbirth abortion, I think the basic argument there isn't very uh is is new, but uh, but I would I would you know, in a new edition, I think yeah, it would be worth uh, bringing that up again or discussing that article.
1: Yeah, and, well
3: uh, if you so, okay. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well,
2: um, yeah. No, I was just going to say, if you do a third edition of the book, I'd be happy to, to pick it up because I, I think your book is um, oh, is, okay. is an excellent resource. And you know, I've, I've been involved in pro life work since about 2010. And I was really smitten with Aristotelianism that I, I read from some philosophers like uh, like you and uh, Frank Beckwith and, and guys like oh, that. Yeah. And so I, I think yeah. your book is a real accessible way to understand the Aristotelian uh, metaphysics and how they respond to certain uh, arguments put forth by abortion choice people, such as you, you talk about in your first chapter, Michael Tooley and Marianne Warren, and how uh, right. even if we understand personhood to be in the same vein that they do, the unborn would still qualify because they have the active potential to develop these capacities. Uh, whereas Tully and Warren believe that you have to be able to perform these functions now.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I think the, yeah, the, the, the basic argument, the overall argument in the book is to say that, uh, you know, again, not, not original with me, but the overall <laughs> argument in the book is to say that, uh, 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 these things that, that, that that's what's what's existing within the human within the womb is a human being is a human organism uh, uh and it's it's well the first step would be it's wrong to kill you and me uh, everyone will admit that you, know, you can't just you know they would admit that it's it's wrong for for, for me to kill you or for you to kill me we're uh, no, sort of normal adult humans but then the question is well what is it that makes it wrong to kill me and then would say the argument is that what makes it wrong to kill me is that it's what makes it is because of the kind of thing that I am, not because of any accidental attributes that I that I have and so uh, it's not because of my size or my degree of development even or the level of intelligence support it, it it's it's the kind of being that i have and there are arguments to support that and i try to go i go into some of those but then the next question is okay well what kind of being am i and that's where actually this first chapter comes in is because some people say well i'm a kind of a i'm a purely conscious being and i have a body or i have an organism i'm not really an organism and then so i argue against that in the ch- in that book and i say, uh, or in the in that chapter and i say that well uh it it, it, you, it doesn't make sense to i mean it, it, to say that i'm just a purely conscious being i really am a bodily being i am an organism and that's 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 the kind of being that i am and since what i am <laughs> is an organism then you can't really say that uh that the that the organism came to be at one point but then I came to be at another point. That's really what uh that's that's what Thule and uh and Warren were saying is that yes it is a there is a human organism in the there's an organism in the human organism in the womb, but you and I are not human organisms. And so yes, the human organism comes to be at conception. But then they say that I, you and I came to be much later when you had a self-conscious subject, and so they divide. They're distinguishing between the self-conscious subject on the one hand and the organism on the other hand. And so, the, the, so I think, but I think that that does not hold up. And I mean, there are arguments, and so I go into some arguments about that. So that's mm-hmm. the first step. I say, well, you know, it's wrong to kill you and me because of the kind of thing you and me are. But the kind of thing you and me are is not just a purely conscious being. We are organisms. So if we are organisms, and, and, and I think there's arguments for that, then it would follow that, that you and I came to be when these organisms came to be. And then you, look, you link up with the biology and you say, well, the, when, the organ, when the human organism came to be, was at conception? So that's the overall argument of the book, and that's why that first chapter is, uh, uh, goes into that, uh, that issue there. So yeah, so some people like Thule and Warren say, well, what makes me me is <laughs> sort of my memories or my psychological, you know, my my, the, the, my my psychological traits, and they think that well, you know, if uh, uh, if I went if I uh, you know if, if I went into persistent vegetative state, for example, they would say, well, that wouldn't be me. That would be the organism that's associated with me, but it wouldn't be me. So what they're doing mm-hmm. is they're they're identifying the I, the ego, the self, with something other than this organism. But I think that's a big mistake.
0: Right. In the book, you do uh, expand a lot on that. Um, It's actually uh, another question that comes up with that. A lot of people, especially at a layperson level, who aren't too familiar with the philosophical arguments of Thule and Warren, Uh uh, uh I think they get confused. They think of birth as the defining moment of what grants a new human life. And it's really funny because I I have a used copy of the book sitting right here in front of me that I bought. I don't remember when. And the person who owned it before, they had a note in here. Apparently, they disagreed with you. And it uh, it actually makes for some interesting reading some of the old persons, the previous owner of the book's notes. And they said, well, our fetus is baptized prior to birth. And I've actually had – I was actually – it's a bit of a humorous argument, but – I think a lot of people do think that, well, at birth, we grant a birth certificate. We say that you're a citizen of the United States. We grant right, yeah. all these rights on you at birth. So why is it that we grant them then but not sometime during pregnancy? Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, I mean, the, the um, uh, there, there are certain rights that you have even before that, uh, but uh, uh, but have been taken away or at least used to be the case. Then they were taken away with Roe v. Wade, in effect. But... Um, uh the 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 birth i think clearly birth is is it can't be the uh dividing line e- even some- even philosophers like uh you know who who want to say it's self consciousness or something like that nothing really uh it, at birth at birth it's it's clear that the entity that was existing within the womb does not become a different kind of entity it it begins to acquire his or her oxygen differently uh But and it's you know it's out and it's going to be able to to see things and so forth. Uh, He or she is going to be able to see things. But but there's nothing there's nothing different in the intrinsic kind of being that was there. Uh, And of course, I mean there are a lot of ways you could see that. I mean, first of all, there's not anything that can do right now. There's not. I mean, it, it can breathe now through its its lungs. But breathing through your lungs that's obviously not something that makes you uh, a person that uh... if you if you if you if you become uh... you get into a car accident and you're put on a ventilator uh... you don't cease to be a person because you can't use your lungs to take in the oxygen uh... another another obvious point i think is that uh... You can induce labor uh, and uh, get the baby to be born earlier on, Uh, and uh, so and that doesn't it doesn't become a person because you induce the the the, you induce the labor that 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 induction there is something that was done to the baby. It's not an intr. Is once the baby's outside, it's still the same kind of being that was there before. So uh the birth is is clearly I, I think not uh not a change in the kind of being that's there uh but more of a, it's obviously a, a kind of a maturation process but when it's when because it's uh, just because it kind of triggers the the activity of the of the of the uh of the diaphragm to to break, to take in take in air but uh... But other than that, it's not—it's—it's uh, not—it's not a difference in the kind of being that's there. Yeah,
2: right. You know, I've, I've heard that argument uh, put forward in several different ways. But you'd you think, at least with talking about baptism, that they'd recognize there's a certain difficulty in baptizing a fetus before it's born. <laughs> namely, that—namely, uh, <laughs> that the mother's body is in the way. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. That's the, <laughs> well. I mean, you know, the—the—the the, the question you got—you have to. I mean, the—the the, the, the Christian. On the Christian view of the sacrament, is you have to be able to pour water over the baby or immerse the baby, but the baby's already in the amniotic fluid. I guess you know there, there could be a mm-hmm. theological question of well, the baby's in the water. Could you do? <laughs> could you baptize it then? But uh, but right, that's a yeah, theological have, question.
2: Yeah, have, uh, have the maybe have the have the priest uh, bless the uh, amniotic fluid or something. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, but uh, I mean that would be. I'm just, I, I, I'm not proposing that seriously. I'm just, uh, oh, I'm right. just saying this is a. And I, but uh, uh, I, I think we have to to assume you have to be able to actually cause the baby to to be uh, have, have water poured on it or or immersed. You have to cause the baby to be immersed, and then you mm-hmm. say the words, you know, that I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. So that, that's that's the idea of the sacrament, but. But uh, I, I, what I was going to go further, not to be too flippant at all, I guess I, I take baptism very seriously. But uh, I was going to say that that's a, the theological question there is sort of uh, above my pay grade. But
0: uh, I guess yeah. we could also think about it in terms of birth being a significant moment. And it's kind of one that, I guess, culture grants to people. I mean, you think about in a lot of Latin American cultures, uh, you have a girl when she turns 15, they celebrate a quinceañera
1: or yeah, in yeah,
0: uh, jewish culture when a boy turns 13 he's uh, considered a man he has the bar mitzvah yeah. so it could be yeah. just something like that a cultural yeah. issue
3: well i mean uh, i guess i mean the if someone put forward as as a serious theological argument i mean serious argument and says well look you know you uh um you should be able to baptize the baby and uh obviously the baby's in the womb you uh you, 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 you know you, you guys admit that you can't baptize him and so it must not be a baby but it doesn't uh, as as you pointed out earlier it doesn't follow the the, the, the reason why we can't baptize him is not because it's not a baby but but because of some other reason you know whatever whatever the reason is in terms of the, the theology of the sacraments but it's uh but but there's nothing no one really holds that well we can't baptize this this baby here because it's not yet a baby no that's the the reason is some other reason so
0: it's actually kind of humorous. Um, I grew up evangelical, and we believed that uh, adults were the only ones to get baptized. And then about two years ago, I switched over to the Reformed tradition. I'm Presbyterian now.
1: Oh, okay. The pastor,
0: yeah. Almost, yeah. Yeah, the pastor was doing a baptism and almost uh, spilled the, um, the bowl of water on several members of the audience. And he almost said, well, I almost baptized you by accident.
1: So, oh,
0: my God. <laughs> 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 there, there are a number yeah. of other issues that do come up with it. So it is more of a layperson's yeah. issue. I uh, yeah. had a bit of a humorous yeah. exchange with a, the man who was actually running for a Congress for my district. I ran into him in a grocery <laughs> store. and We were standing there talking and he actually said, he goes, you know, well, at birth, the Constitution says that at birth, you are considered the full rights of a person. I don't agree with his constitutional argument, but he was also saying things like, well, we would also have to change the carpool lane and, and everything like that. So it's a bit ironic, but I think a lot of people do get confused there. You would have to change uh, what now? I'm
3: sorry, you'd have to change what?
0: Uh the rules regarding carpool lanes, so letting a single pregnant woman oh, drive carpooling. in a carpool lane.
3: Yes. Okay. Yeah. See. yeah, right. yeah, yeah.
0: And uh Well
3: I, <laughs> But I mean, I think we should adjust our, our rules to the facts and and the relevant yeah. relevant facts. Whether you've got a baby inside you or or uh, or uh, or the baby's uh, outside the womb, whether that's you know whether that's which whether it's relevant whether he's inside or outside. But yeah, you have to re- adjust to the facts. But I mean, I think the law uh, I think is just simply uh, is just simply uh, inconsistent there uh, because I yeah. think. Uh, um, um, uh, it It speaks about persons, and these you know the the uh they say that uh well it's not a person in the constitutional sense, but I think the Constitution really never really defines what a person is and uh the I think what uh when when the Constitution does speak about persons, what they mean by persons are uh, is uh whatever in fact is truly a person, and uh if that turns out to cl- include Uh, Unborn humans, then, then that's the way it is. If it turns out to include porpoises and 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 whales, then it would, you know, or or porpoises and dolphins, it would uh, it would it would it would would apply to them also. But so, I think the Constitution, uh, 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 I think, is really on the one hand is saying that uh, there are certain rights that belong to all persons, and then it doesn't address the Constitution itself does not address the question of well what. What, when do you, do you have a person or what's the extension of the term person but I think the facts of the matter are that there's no difference no relevant difference between the unborn humans and the born humans with respect to being a person and so uh, the term person would would, would fit, would, does apply to them so, but uh, but that's in the constitutional issue <laughs> yeah I think uh,
0: Frank Beckwith actually in his book Defending Life he gives a bit of a humorous analogy he says he goes well frankly <laughs> Uh, Frank, frankly, uh, he actually says, yeah. he goes, you know, none of those laws, that none of that was the issue before Roe versus Wade, so why would it be an issue now? I mean, right. I don't seem to recall reading that the Supreme Court was saying, oh, well, we need to legalize abortion, otherwise our carpool laws won't make any sense. I mean, yeah. Yeah, right. and they still don't make <laughs> sense in California. <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The carpool. Yeah. <laughs> how how to make sense of those carpool rules? That's the that's the crucial issue. Like so, but yeah. no, I, I mean, I think it, 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 on, the, on the constitutional thing, it, it's the 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 it never the Constitution never says that uh, that infants are persons or or adolescents are persons. It never really it really doesn't really tell us when you have a person and when you don't, uh, the Constitution. Now, you know, they had the Supreme Court cases that uh, I think uh, uh, fouled things up, but uh, but in terms of what the Constitution is saying, I think they, they were just depending upon the, the uh, 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 I think they were using the term person in the normal, everyday sense, and then the question of whether whether this or that entity is a person would be another, would be something else that the Constitution did not uh, did not itself uh, uh, define. So.
0: Changing task a little bit to get a little more yeah. philosophical regarding the personhood issue. In your book, you do talk about the arguments of Marianne Warren and Michael Tooley and that they do differ on where they draw the line. Marianne Warren, she's very, it seems like in her arguments, she's uncomfortable with the notion of infanticide, that her personhood argument to just give the qualifications that she thinks are needed for persons, she says, she lists consciousness, reasoning, self-motivated activity, and the capacity to communicate an indefinite variety of types of messages and the presence of self-concepts. And Michael Tooley, obviously, he draws the line a little bit after birth. I think it's about a week after birth is where he draws the line. And Warren disagrees with that. And she says, well, we can't really let infanticide happen, so... Would it still be the same kind of functionalist argument that pretty much a lot of the pro-choice philosophers will make?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think Warren wrote an afterward for that uh, for that article, and she had some arguments about uh, uh, about our duty to treat the newborns as persons. But I think she's conceding uh, in that afterward that they may not be persons. But she thought it was wise to treat them as persons because uh so that uh, um so that uh, when we you know when they do get older that that you know the, the affection is there she thought it would be uh, you know would have some kind of consequentialist uh uh, uh or utilitarian uh, uh bad effects uh if we uh if we if we drew the line later than at birth um I'd I'd have to go back and look in detail at at that afterward. But that was a that was a postscript or an afterward that she added to that uh, article later on. Uh, Thule thinks that personhood he he thinks that personhood doesn't doesn't occur until you have self consciousness or self conscious in the sense of which you have a concept of yourself as a continuing subject of experiences. Now, that doesn't that doesn't come until much later and so uh and so he, he you know it probably doesn't even come until you know t- till language starts uh, but uh but he said well just for just to be safe we'll we'll draw the line in three months and so um, um, so so that this brings up a kind of a difficulty for that position is if if they're going to say that which there's some plausibility in saying that uh, well, you're not a person until you have self-consciousness, because uh, that's what makes us different from dogs and cats and horses and so forth. Is that yes, we're sentient, we have we you know we can sense things, we can perceive things, but we're also are self-conscious. So uh, the, there is some plausibility in saying self-consciousness is is a, is, a, is a good trait that makes you one a person. But of course, then if that's the case, it really doesn't occur until really, much, much later than birth, uh, six, eight months, you know, really, uh, probably, until uh, you have language, and the language there is, uh, uh, you know, sort of almost, you know, sentential kind of language, syntactic kind of language, uh, until, until much later. So in any case, you know, that's going to push, push personhood way after birth. Now Thule just says, well uh he he in a way b- bites the bullet on that and says that uh, uh they're not persons until at least three months as he says we'll, we'll just for safety reasons just just draw the line at uh, at three months and uh but uh, 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 that, that's I, I I think it's very hard to craft a position which will say that uh, these are, you know, that what, what may, that uh, that you need some kind of mental function that distinguishes distinguishes you from other animals, and that uh, 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 that unborn human beings don't have it, and yet that newborns do have it. There's not really any mental function that the newborns are performing that uh, that is that uh, that is lacking in in the unborn humans. So uh so I think uh, it's very hard to I think craft this personhood uh, uh pro-choice position in a way that uh that allows abortion and yet uh rules out uh infanticide. But the problem the, the, the other the other problem with that of course is that uh, the the one fundamental problem is that uh is that they are they're talking about self-consciousness or you know, I think Marianne Warren talked about developed uh, reasoning or or uh developed consciousness I'm sorry she talked about developed consciousness and re- and developed reasoning uh she had uh language she says you don't have to have all five of those traits but you need to have but 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 if you have none of them then you're not a person so you need to have some of them but uh the problem is that uh that obviously th- those have to be you have to talk about capacities there you can't have the, these aren't actual behaviors that uh, humans aren't always performing. These mental functions—we uh, go to sleep. We, you know, we, we, we may, sometimes we you know we're unco- we're unconscious for a variety of reasons. And so it has to be so that, so in order to make sense, they're going to have to say it's a capacity for self-consciousness or a capacity for some kind of mental function. And once they say it's a capacity, then they're going to have to take another step, and they're going to say, well, it's a certain kind of capacity. This the kind of capacity that a newborn does not. I mean, sorry, the kind of capacity that an unborn human does not have. They're going to have to say that they're going to justify abortion. Uh, so they're going to have to say, well, it's a it's a certain kind of capacity. It's an immediately exercisable capacity, or current capacity or proximate capacity, however you want to say, the kind of capacity that could be actualized, you know, in the next few minutes or, you know, in in response to a stimulus. Because uh, an unborn human uh, does, after all, have some kind of capacity for these mental functions. Uh, the unborn human uh, has a kind of, uh, you could call it a radical capacity or root capacity in the sense that, uh he has the uh he, the, the unborn human he or she has the internal resources to uh develop himself or herself to the stage where they will perform those mental functions so even though they can't right now perform those mental functions, they can develop themselves to the point where they will perform those mental functions, and that is a kind of capacity or you know it's a it's a uh It's 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 a it's a basic potentiality or a basic capacity or natural capacity, and so so they have that, and so uh, which is really part of their nature. In other words, it's part of it's part of it follows upon the kind of being that they are, and so uh, um, the question would be the the question that uh, that that uh, to to put to uh, someone like Warren or Thule is. Well, why do you pick out the immediately exercisable capacity and say that a being has to have that kind of capacity for mental functions and say that it's not enough to have the uh, this this more basic um, uh, radical or root capacity uh, that that any uh, human being any any human being, including unborn human beings has
2: and what I find interesting about uh, Warren's essay. Is that she doesn't even justify her position that a person is an entity which satisfies at least a few of these criteria. She just says if you disagree with me, then you really have no idea what a person actually is. She doesn't even engage with the argument that a person is something that has these root capacities rather than something that is able to exercise them presently.
3: Yes, right, right. Yeah, and I yeah, it's 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 she's engaging a kind of a linguistic uh Analysis there, and uh, and the the first of all, linguistic analysis is open to question. But even if even if you were writing the linguistic analysis, you can't uh, you can't settle an ethical question in in that way. (laughs) Can't say this is the way we use the word, you know, person, or this is the way we use the word uh, human, and therefore such and such. Well, that doesn't uh, that's not a very good argument. Even apart, I I think she's wrong about how we use the word uh, person. Uh, I, I think that that's. Uh, I think she's she's quite mistaken. I don't think we. Ha- I think it it applies to things. I think it applies to entities. We would apply it to entities that have only this root capacity for uh, for uh, self-consciousness and deliberate choice and so forth.
0: So, kind of moving on a little bit, since we are still on the personhood subject. Your chapter after that kind of follows the same line, and it talks about. The question of the chapter, basically the implicit question is, do unborn human beings become persons during gestation? And then critiquing uh, what's called the gradualist view, um, that human beings gradually gain the value-giving properties or value-giving functions over time during pregnancy. So, for example, I rarely meet, like when I'm doing outreach, I do a lot of outreach on the college campuses, Mm -hmm. talking to students. And I've rarely met a student who will defend late-term abortion or even infanticide. I mean, there are a few out there, but even today, I just saw actually uh, like 10 minutes before we started recording news that the House of Representatives had passed the uh, federal bill to ban uh, abortions after 20 weeks. So uh, our culture seems to be accepting of the moral wrong of late-term abortions and infanticide, but at the same time, early abortions, where none of those functions have been realized or are even present, seems to be acceptable. Mm
3: -hmm. Right. And and I think, well, yeah, that's – and – uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's very difficult to to see to make to make uh, sense of that from a philosophical standpoint. I think, because um, uh, unless you want to go the route, which I guess you know, which which someone can go, which is to say that what makes you valuable is sentience, because uh, because uh, if you say that what makes you valuable is in some way uh, the, uh, the 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 a, a capacity for uh, for self-consciousness, then I, I think that's really not there. The uh, immediately excisable capacity is not there, even even in even in uh, the late-term uh, baby. But but in any case, some people for, there are philosophers who will say that uh, that there's a certain kind of conscious desire for continued living that. Uh, uh, the, 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 that, that the, that the uh, fetus has uh, a capacity for, say, maybe 28 weeks or 20 something weeks. Uh, David Boonin, for example, says that, and L.W. Sumner says that, and some others say that. And so uh, I think it's sort of belying the facts, but, I, but nevertheless, if, if you take that route, this, this kind of position is a little different from the other one. The, the one Michael Tooley, I think, is saying that, uh, well, what we mean by I is a self-conscious subject. The unborn human is not an unconscious subject, so that's not, that wasn't me. I never, was, I never existed in the womb.
1: Uh,
3: I, I came to be sometime later. So they're saying the human being, the, the human organism comes to be a, at one point, but then I came to be later, and I think that's uh, uh, the, the the problem with that is I think you and I are human organisms. We're we're bodily beings. We're not just conscious beings who, that that have bodies. Now this this position, which we which I take up in the, in the chapter two,
1: uh,
3: is saying that yes, okay, I, you and I are human organisms, and you and I existed mm-hmm. in the womb. Uh, but we became valuable as subjects of rights later on when we acquired some kind of characteristic uh, some you know some incidental characteristic like uh this immediately exercisable capacity for uh self conscious desires or conscious desires and then that and then they say well that becomes... become that 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 an entity or a baby or a, an unborn human would would acquire maybe 20 week, 25 weeks or 28 weeks or something like that
1: uh I, I
3: think so so that's the that what that's saying is that uh, what makes you and me valuable is not the, the, the kind of being we are but some attribute that we have in addition to the kind of being we are and that's the kind of position I think that 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 uh, I I think that's that is I think probably maybe the mo- one of the more you know it's hard to say I haven't done a survey with this but so that is perhaps one of the more popular positions anyway. Right. Clinton you want to jump in with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I could. Um, I've recently gone over Sumner's book, and he it, like like you talk about in your book, he's a gradualist, and I, I think it at least has. A, plausible, uh, right. a plausibility behind it because, it as he says, it does seem to to address the, the common abortion choice intuition that uh, pregnancy is, is better the earlier that it's done and it's worse the later on that it goes. And I think you, you convincingly argue against that. But uh, I'm also working through Dworkin's book right now, Life's Dominion. And I think, uh, and, right. and again, this is, this is something you talk about in your book too, so... You know, I'm trying to be a little bit vague because I want to encourage people to go out and, and buy the book uh, because I, I think it will be a great resource for them. But you talk about how Dworkin uh, makes a case that there are two different kinds of pro-life arguments. I forget the names for it. I've got your, your book here. B- basically one view that the opposition to abortion is grounded in rights, uh, the rights of the, of the unborn embryo or fetus, and then another one which is just based in sort of a more uh, general sanctity of life. And one of the points that you make against Dworkin, uh, which is true of myself as well, is that – oh, yeah, the uh, the derivative versus the detached objection that Dworkin talks about. Right. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about how Dworkin is not uh, considering the views of, of many pro-life people who do take a consistent view and oppose, for example, abortion in the case of rape uh, because they do see it as a violation of the unborn human beings' rights. And so – yeah,
3: yeah so. he's he's engaging a kind of odd hominem attack there i mean he, he, even mm-hmm. if it were the case that abortionists were not consistent that nothing would follow from that all all, all that would follow is mm-hmm. that well there was you know they needed to clean up you know they needed to get their views in line but it, it wouldn't mm-hmm. it wouldn't follow that the uh the fundamental objection they're raising uh uh was was uh was an invalid objection so i think he he really is engaging in in a uh uh, and I mean, he, he has a lot of other things that are you know worth reading. He's not not a, I'm not saying he's a, a not an able philosopher, but right there right. he's engaging in a an odd hominem attack.
2: Yeah, and so, I think that's a great point too. That uh, even if he's correct about pro life people not being consistent, uh, that doesn't follow that their view is wrong. It just yeah. proves that they need yeah. to be consistent.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, mean, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, a lot, a lot of pro-life people are consistent. I mean, you know, they say, okay, well, right. you know, we, here was a miscarriage. We, we had a miscarriage, and we're, we're very sad. And this is, you know, this is a very, I mean, I, I don't, you know, the guy just doesn't, you know, apparently doesn't talk to a lot of women uh, you know, who, have, who have, who have, who have, who have either had this, you know, had a miscarriage or known someone who's had a miscarriage. You know, the, right. when a woman has a miscarriage, she really feels, you know, she. Doesn't usually say, oh well, you know, I'll just try again and replace this one. You know, there's a there's a real loss there, and that's that's uh, 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 the, the, those are you know those are women. You know, no matter what their position on on, uh, uh, you know, they're not working out that that's just their natural uh, intuitions here coming into play. So, but in any case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Dworkin has that kind of view that that uh, he wants to say that well that they they don't have intrinsic rights they they only have uh, uh you can talk about them as being valuable in the way in which a painting is valuable or something like that mm-hmm. so you're, you're you're you you grieve in the sense the the way in which you might grieve that that someone lost a painting or something but but yeah, this is and, just yeah.
2: Yeah, and uh as I was looking up uh, the book because uh, I I had I think I had become aware of it based on a footnote from another book that I was reading. And when I was on there looking it up uh, on Amazon about to place an order, I was looking through some of the reviews, and I think there might have been one by you. If not you, it might have been Stephen Schwartz, but it was a pro-life thinker in the uh, pro-life field. That uh, talk about it too, but I, I've heard that Dorkin's book *Life's Dominion* is, has been an influential one. But as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, you know, this book doesn't respond to any of my views because he's responding to the sanctity of life view, which I think is probably true as well. But I also do consistently hold, you know, the rights-based view, and so even if he's arguing against the sanctity of life view, it's really not applying to, or it's really not responding to to my concerns as a pro-life person.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the the, the I mean, the the arguments there is that is that the, these w- when you when you kill an unborn whether you kill an unborn human or born human you're de- you're depriving this this entity of the future that, that uh, he or she would have had. That's the way Don Marquis puts it. I think he's so, he's sound on this uh, on this on this point that yeah. uh, uh you know what what makes killing wrong what makes killing wrong is that we're depriving someone of the future that they would have had we're not depriving them of a past or even of the present we can't do that but there's a uh, they have the potential to do this or to do that and do that and then we are cutting off that potential we and so that's we're, we're we're bringing about that they that they lack what they otherwise would have had now that's uh, that's that's true of an unborn human as well as a born human and the kind of future that we're depriving them of is the same is the future uh of a uh, uh of the same kind of being as you or me and so I, i'm not depriving them of the you know of, of a subhuman life i'm not depriving them of a uh, of a of a of a plant life or animal life, I'm, I'm depri- depriving them of a human life and and uh, of a rat of the, of the same kind of life as you or me. So, uh, the the uh, so uh, that's a rights based approach. I think.
0: I think uh, Chris Chaser actually expands on uh, Marcus's point a little bit. He has an article uh, where he critiques Marcus's argument and he actually expands on it. He says he calls it. I think he calls it instead of a future like ours, it's more of a flourishing like ours, so right, yeah, um, right, yeah, yeah, that not just killing us doesn't just deprive us of the future, it also deprives us or it basically ends any flourishing we would have had.
3: yeah, I think you're right, yeah, yeah, I think the, 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 that, that flourishing term is a little better because I think what, what Don Mark I think Don has a, he has a very good article. Uh, the uh, the one part that I, that I disagree with Don is he he and I think this is maybe relevant to why he used the word future rather than something like flourishing is he he a future like ours is one that we value so then he thinks if it's not a one that a person would value then it would not be valuable so in other, in other words he, I think he he thinks that. Uh, uh, it has to be a future like ours in the sense of having conscious experiences and, 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 and of, a, of a positive sort. And so then I think he has the view that uh, you, you could have someone whose uh, future is so, uh, you know, is so dire uh, that, uh, that he would not value it, and so it would not be a future like ours. But, but I think it has to be the, the, the flourishing of a rational being is i think whatever whatever the the the, the fulfillment the, the the being and full being or fulfillment of a, of a rational being i think is inherently worthwhile and to deprive a being of that kind of future or that kind of of uh, actualization is uh, is is intrinsically uh is intrinsically wrong
1: Hmm.
3: And, and, and deprive you know and it is, is is harming them and doing a wrong harming them uh, uh, doing an injustice to them so 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 right. it is a rights based thing so yeah so, 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 uh, so but, I, but I think the the the, the thing about the uh, the the Dworkin position and the Sumner position is I think that they're locating what makes you valuable in an accidental characteristic and that I think is uh is problematical. I think. I think that's not. I don't. I don't think that's going to work. I think because I. I think that's. It's. It's an arbit- it, it ends up being a kind of arbitrary line drawing. So what. What makes you and me valuable? I think has to be the, the fundamental kind of thing that we are, not some characteristic that we can acquire at some point uh, during our life and then lose at some other point. It, it's the. It's the. It's the me. It's. It's the I. It's the, It's. It's the being that I am. The, the fundamental being that I am—that's what's valuable, and what makes me valuable is the is, is being me, not not you know, or the fundamental kind of thing that I am, not some characteristic that I acquire at some point. And uh, otherwise, I think that they're going to be uh, uh, they're picking out a kind of uh, uh, there's a sort of arbitrary line here. They're picking out a certain degree of development. Uh, and, and making that the, the, the criterion that the, you know that, that something has to fulfill rather than the, the fundamental kind of thing that it is. Yeah,
2: yeah so uh, once again, we are live with Patrick Lee, a pro-life philosopher. If you have questions for Pat, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. Otherwise, we'll just keep the conversation going here.
0: You know, to kind of move on to the the next section. Uh, We touched on this a little bit about the question it's in chapter three of the book is when do individual human beings come to be? Right. And we touched on it a little bit. It's actually a little bit sad how ignorant some people are of this question or even really it's a willing ignorance. I think Clinton, you put it real well when you say that this is only a hard question. The question of when a human life comes into existence is only a hard question for the people who want to justify uh, killing that life. And so uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but also there are a few other questions that do come up in the chapter, such as you have a really good section on hylomorphism and the topic of ensoulment. I think we could just go over that for a couple minutes.
3: Uh, yeah, the uh, the hylomorphism the, uh, the idea that is that human beings are are uh, body soul composites, or uh, like other material substances, matter form. Uh, composites uh, there's they they're, they're, they have a certain they have certain matter in them but then the, there's a soul or there's there's a principle of unity that informs that matter to be, make it be this kind of thing rather than other kinds of things that this matter you know could be formed into uh and so uh and, and of course that and then we're since we're talking about a living being the matter the 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 form is is called a soul so uh so then you because of this uh, uh, question about the, if, if human beings are body-soul composites, or that they're made up of a body and a soul, uh, the, the question then, you know, has been raised in the past and by different philosophers, and theologians, is when is it that the rational soul uh, comes to be in the in the human, in in the fetus, or in, in the embryo. Uh, um, And uh, or given that God creates the rational soul and infuses it into the body, does God do that, create the rational soul and infuse it at conception or does he do it later? And if he does it later, then that would mean that between the time of conception and whatever time God infuses the rational soul, you could say, well, it's not really a human yet because it doesn't yet have a rational soul. So this actually is a question that you know that that has come up historically uh so you had uh, for example Thomas Aquinas given his the biology that he was familiar with he concl- he thought that uh the you after you have conception which he which he didn't know about the sperm and the ovum he thought the the woman he thought the woman contributes the sort of menstrual blood and the and the man c- mm-hmm contributes the semen, and the semen sort of gradually forms the, the, that blood into a human body, and it gradually informs it, forms it into a body uh, that's apt for reception of a rational soul. So he thought that that, forming, that formation process took time and that you needed to have a body that was suited to be uh, the, the body of a rational being of a, and so he thought it had to have sense organs and it didn't have sense organs until 40 or 80 days after um, after conception and so he thought it was only 40 or 80 days after conception that uh, that God infused the rational soul uh, so some Philosophers and, and theologians have taken that up, and, and uh, Aquinas' view, and said, "Well, okay, he got the biology wrong, but still, the basic view that you need to have a body suited for a rational soul—that's still true. And you really don't have a body suited for a rational soul from conception on. You, it, it, that doesn't—it it doesn't become suited to a rational soul until maybe you have uh, the development of the brain, which which would come." uh you know the brain begins to develop uh, you know the, the rudiments of the brain at two weeks but then you only really have brain functioning maybe at six seven weeks so then they would place the uh, sort of the, the the presence of the rational soul they would place that later so that's an objection that i took up and i and what i argued was that uh was that uh, it? it uh, uh, if you take Aquinas's principles and you apply them to the biology we know today, you'd have to say that uh, that the rational soul is present from conception on. Uh, you could not the the the, the idea that uh, that that uh, you're not going to have a rational soul given that there is a rational given that there is a soul-body composite. The idea that the soul is not there until uh, several weeks later uh isn 't going to make sense it, it won 't make sense biologically the the, the biological facts don 't don 't cohere with with the other principles and the reason why is the, there are a couple a couple of reasons why that 's the case what what Aquinas didn 't realize was uh well there are two two big things he didn 't realize that that i think that really just show that his theory you know, his, his view that that it was there was a delayed you know that, that the rational soul was not until later um uh, wouldn't work. One is he thought that the semen was there for several, you know, for, for several weeks you know, or several days, de- you know, for like six, seven weeks, you know, or at least. Uh, he thought the semen was gradually, you need to have an agent forming the body to get a human body that's oh apt for reception of the soul. Now, the agent, the, he thought the agent was the semen, Uh but now we know of course, that at fertile, now he didn't know anything about the, the sperm and the, you know, the, the, the sperm and the ovum so uh, but now we know that the semen is not present after fertilization. the semen's gone the, you know the, the, the sperm is gone, the ovum is gone uh, you get you have a new entity all you have there is the embryo. so you don't you know given Aquinas' principles you need, you need to have if you're going to have a something forming this body and the, and the something forming the body has to be have a kind of human uh form in it and so in on Aquinas' view it was the it was the it was the father sort of acting through the instrumentality of the of the of the semen the semen was there gradually forming the the menstrual blood into a body into a human body uh well, once you know that the that the semen is gone, then the only thing that's going to construct a body, you know, that's a mature human body, is the embryo itself. But that means the embryo itself already has to have the human form in it, in order for this to work metaphysically. So, in other words, uh, uh, Aquinas's principle—if you apply Aquinas's principles to what we know about biology today—the mm-hmm. conclusion would be that the soul is present from conception on uh <clears throat> the other the other point is he did not he did not know about the uh, he did not know that uh at, at he did not know about fertilization and he did not know that th- that embryo early on had the internal potential to develop uh the uh the, the all of the organs uh, that it needs to uh, to provide sense experience for uh, for uh, intelligent thought, so he he thought you need to have organs, but he didn't he didn't know that the that the embryo was had the internal potential to develop those organs that were necessary, and so uh, 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 the, the 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 embryo from day one has all of the resor- internal resources needed to uh, develop. To the stage where it will have a body that's suited to be the substrate of conceptual thought right then and there, but uh, so it, it doesn't have uh, it doesn't have a developed brain yet, but it has the internal resources to develop the brain, and that's what Aquinas was not aware of and so that anyway that so I think that means that if you applied his principles to what we know about biology today the conclusion would be that the rational soul is there from from conception on
2: now this wasn't really addressed in your book but it's it's sort of related uh, I have an interest in this discussion because I'm going to be writing an article for it in the Christian Research Journal, and I'm currently in the uh, in the research stage for it. so i'm I'm curious as to where you land in this discussion and what your reasons are for it. In Christianity, there is an in-house debate amongst creationists and traditions, of course, not to be confused with the creationism evolutionism debate right. uh, for for anyone who may be unfamiliar with this debate, and Pat, please correct my understanding of these positions if I'm mistaken. but creationists believe, that the soul is created at fertilization when the human body is created, but traditions believe that the soul is passed down from the father and mother through the transmission of genetic material when the sperm fertilizes the egg. Which which position uh, position do you hold regarding that discussion?
3: I take the creationist position because I think um, it's the thing that the... uh, Now, I, I don't think you necessarily have to settle this issue before you settle the abortion issue. So I think the abortion issue can be settled before you get into this. Uh right. they're, they're independent. I mean I mean they're obviously interlinked, interlinked, but I don't think a uh, traditionist would would necessarily have to be pro would would necessarily have to be pro abortion or or would even the way, you know, the way you put it there a moment ago is that a traditionist could say that well the the, the human soul is passed on at uh at fertilization. So uh but, but, but it, all of that said, I, I I do think that the human, that, that the thing about the human being is that uh, the very uh, strange creature is that I think there are, we are bodily beings, so we are organisms, um, we are animal organisms, but we also have certain powers that are spiritual powers. So I, I think intellect and will, that these powers that to, to understand and to make choices and to, to acts of will, I think they are powers that I have, but I but but when I exercise them, I don't make use of a bodily organ. And I think the reason why is because I think you know the, like concepts are universal concepts that the, they're they're sort of the, they're an essence you know they're grasping an essence shared in common by many. So I it, I don't think that's going to work with the bodily organ. The body would they be it would uh, the concept would be individualized if it were um, if it were sort of instantiated in a, in a bodily organ. So so uh, anyway, that that's sort of that's part of the argument for that. But but I think uh, I, I do think acts of understanding and acts of willing are spiritual actions in the sense that they are not they are done by us who are both body and soul. But that, but in these acts, unlike walking or or uh, or uh, you know uh, swinging my hand or something like that, they're 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 not done with a bodily organ. They're not or even sensing or imagining. Those are those are bodily organs. So I walk with my legs. I imagine with my brain. I see with my eyeballs. But when I understand, it's I'm the one who's understanding. But I, I don't think there's any bodily organ there. Um, so now, given that, then I think the, the, the sort of the, the, the principle for that or the source for that in me, the, 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 there's a part of me, then, I think that's, that's, that's not just uh, 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 that, that that's act, there's an action there that's independent of matter. So the principle, the form, or the soul, I think, has its existence independent of matter. Now, if it has its existence independent of matter, then I think it has to receive its existence independent of matter, and that means it can't come to be uh, with the coming to be of the, the the of the whole bodily entity. So I think things like you know the the the, the size, the shape, the color, the uh, all of these, uh, you know, the material attributes come to be with the coming to be of the the the, 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 the bodily entity but the the human soul, the rational soul, since it has this this transcendence of matter, this this spiritual uh, sort of independence of matter, I think that cannot come to be the, the parents uh, as the since the parents are body soul composites, and the generative act is a body soul action. The product of that is a body soul. Is a body is a is a you know matter form thing, so I think the independent soul has to be directly created by God. Anyway, that's the philosophical thing. I guess the short, the, <laughs> the sort of the shortcut answer is for both philosophical and theological reasons, I I side with the creationist on that. But all yeah, of that, um, I think you could you I don't you know the, the I I, uh, I don't think you have to establish that before. You say that abortion is wrong, or before you say that, okay, you and I came to be at conception.
2: Right, because whether or not creationism or traditionism is correct, what is uncontroversial is that the soul does exist when the human does the fertilization.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, even the, even even, 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 I, I, I think actually, even you can run the whole argument hmm. uh, uh, saying that you and I came to be at conception even before we talk about soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, I think you, you okay. know, once you know once the question you know when questions keep coming, I think uh, uh, eventually you have to bring out but bo- bo- you know matter and form and and soul and body. Yeah. But I think uh, but uh, mm-hmm. but but the argument the, the 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 initial the basic overall argument it doesn't presuppose the notion of even a soul. Okay. Much less that that the soul comes to, is directly that the rational soul is directly created by God. Although I right. I, mean, I think those are you know those are true, but I just don't don't think you have, don't think you have to establish those prior to setting out the basic pro-life uh, position.
2: Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, I have one more one more question along these lines, and then we can move on to the the next chapter here. On Pages 81 through 83 uh, in Chapter 3 of your book, you talk about a thought experiment by Baruch Brody, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in in which he says, if we imagine brain technology has reached the point at which we can, when brain death occurs, remove the brain, liquefy it, and then recast it into the same body, though it bears no relation to the old one, having none of its memory traces, etc. When you place the recast brain back into the same human body, that the person that results will be a numerically different person from the one who underwent, who underwent brain death. Uh, And then you also mentioned that you agree with Brody's intuitions in the thought experiment, although you argue that he draws the wrong conclusion about being human from it. Uh, Could you explain why you agree with with Brody's intuitions that the person with the recast brain would be a different person from the one who reached brain death? Because as I'm reading that, uh, my intuition is that he would be the same person because if we, uh, for example, were to transplant, give him a new liver or a new heart, he would still be the same person. And so it seems that to argue that Brody is correct in his intuitions. It seems like we would have to assume that that the brain is the person. But if the if the person is is not simply the brain, but is a, a composite of both his body and his soul, it seems like he could survive brain death w- when given a brand new brain. Uh, could you just kind of comment on that a little bit? Uh,
3: yeah, I, I have to confess, I don't recall that. Uh I I'm looking at it in the book here. I, I, I didn't oh. uh I didn't review the Brody here thing, but uh oh. uh, uh. The, the the I think the key thing here I think is uh if I can reconstruct the whole thing for, for sure, but uh, uh but uh, uh I think there's a problem with the liquid. Uh, he's not hmm. talking about he's not talking about extracting the brain from the head and putting it into another body. He's talking about liquefying it. I think. Uh, hmm. So, and, and he wants to then then recast it with the same structure. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, so I, think the, I don't expect the, you to. The thing is that, part, yeah, yeah I, I think Brody was using that uh, using that thought experiment to try to say that you don't have an individual before you have the brain. And so he he wants to locate the uh, the coming to be of the human individual with the emergence of the brain at at six uh, you know at six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, of course, the brain it takes a while to to develop. I mean, it's just sort of a gradual right. kind of thing. So, but uh, I was saying that I think if you're talking about if you if you if you ext- if, if you Recast the thing, then I think it wouldn't be a brain. It wouldn't be the same individual because I think he's not talking about extracting the brain from one individual and, and giving it to another. I I think if I think that's what I think that's what the thought experiment was, right? The the liquid, the, the, the thing is the liquefaction. I think is the.
2: Yeah, so, yeah, I was just going to say, sorry, you know, I don't expect you to, you know, uh, remember everything that's in your book, and so, uh, yeah, I apologize for for kind of putting you on the spot there. I was just kind of curious about about your thoughts on that.
3: Well, I mean... the basic thing is, I think, if you if you just extracted the brain from one individual and put it in the body of another one, this this is sort of a thought experiment, a common one. I think I agree with I I I I, I think we probably agree on that point. Is I I think that's what you were talking about, right? Uh, I think if if you just took the brain out and put it into another individual, then I think. That uh, say you took the brain of A and put it into, let's say, you know, uh, he has a twin brother, and uh, the, the, the twin brother dies, and then uh, and, but you put you know you extract twin brothers uh, B's, you know, uh, twin brother B's uh, uh, extract his brain, put, put A 's brain in there, then I think that would be A, not, not B. Uh, in other words I think the individual I think the brain is sort of the indispensable part of the human the indispensable material part of the human being. Mm-hmm. So I so I think you could carve down I mean I mean uh, I I don't I don't know how far we could get with this but in principle I think if you if you could you could carve down even to just the brain and if you got the brain sort of floating in a vat of formaldehyde I think that would be me. Yeah, Uh, very truncated me, but uh, but I think he was talking about the 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 the, the problem with his thought experiment is first of all Mm -hmm. he's talking about the liquefaction thing, but but the the before you have the before you have the uh, uh, the the embryo before she develops her brain, she has the internal potential and of developing that brain and she, so uh-huh. she's on a trajectory of developing this kind of brain rather than another kind of kind of brain uh-huh. a brain suitable for conceptual thought and so so it's the same individual from you know, there they're on now if if you took a seven week old embryo and extracted the brain of the second week seven week embryo and put it in some something else then I think that uh, that that would be the same as the original embryo. Does that make sense? I don't know. If, I don't know if that made. I mean, whether that whether you were talking whether you followed that in terms of uh, which which embryo I'm talking
2: about. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense.
3: Okay, we could get a whole
0: new podcast out of that one.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the sort of body swapping and brain swapping and all that. I I, I think if you took the brain of one individual, and put it in another, I think it'd be body swapping, not brain swapping.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, before we move on, actually, for one of my classes, I just watched the movie uh, Frankenstein, the old. Uh,
1: mm
0: gosh, now I can't remember his name, uh, Boris Karloff has the monster. Um, oh,
1: right. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah.
0: And this subject did come up, actually, where it was actually, there was an old theory of criminal behavior, what was called the biological theory, and it was thought that brain structure or even genetics is what contributed to criminal behavior. Oh, right, so yeah. It's, it was kind of funny. I was uh, reverting back to that a little bit. The concept comes up is a criminal's brain is stolen and... Re-added to the monster's body, and that's what led the monster to be a very violent, basically a killer. Is yeah. that criminal person was still there, even though the body was dead, essentially?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, uh, well, yeah. The, <laughs> I, I think that would be right. I think if, if you took the brain, I think I think we go with the brain. Now then, you get into some other issues about uh, well, what if you could split the brain in two? You know, like. Uh, have a callosotomy and then, and then give the, give one half the brain, give one half of the, you, you have person A and you give one half to B and the other half to C. Uh, and then which we, you know, it, which one is he going to be? And then I, I think you, you might not, we might not know, you know, which one it is. And,
1: yeah. <laughs> but I it's think, I think
3: there's a truth. I think there's a truth of the matter uh, that uh, he's probably going to be one or the other, but he can't be both. I think
0: It's interesting. Um, just also before we move on in neuroscience, the concept of severing the corpus callosum, which is the yeah. the structure of the brain that connects both the right and left hemispheres, and uh, right. individuals who have severe epilepsy and severe epileptic episodes, they will surgically sever that, uh, yeah. will that to prevent the seizure from taking over their whole body. But that person is still a unified entity; they don't split into two different personalities. They still maintain their personality, even though some of their physical functioning changes.
3: Yeah, actually yeah, in, in actual fact there there is some intercommunication, but but uh, you know, so so the the sort of thought the philosophical thought experiments don't actually work, you know, I right. mean, at least the ones where they're saying, well, uh, you know, you put A but but it, but there is this uh I mean with the thought experiment, you you, you sort of imagine that uh, you have this person who's uh that the two hemispheres are sort of equal equally able and then, and then you split it and and you give uh you give half the brain to one individual and the other half to 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 a third and you know the another individual and then the uh, and then the then the question comes up is well which one uh which one is he or is he uh, uh, you probably would they probably would not have uh all the same memories and so forth but and all the same right. abilities they'd be quite different but if you imagine they could have all the same memories, I think they still would not be the same person, so. hmm. which is a difficulty for sort of a, lo- a Lockean view of the person.
0: Kind of moving on to another bit of a science fiction analogy. In your book, you have the section on where you talk about the bodily rights arguments, uh, yes. of Judas Jarvis right. Thompson and David Boone. And you titled it, Is Abortion Justified as Non-Intentional Killing? Right. I'm uh, kind of curious to know why uh, you framed the discussion in that manner.
3: Well, I think that's the, I think that's basically her argument. Now, uh, I think you know the way she set the thing up was uh, she was saying that uh, y- you could you could un, you know, she said it was analogous to unplugging a violinist and uh you, you know the, you wake up and your you your your kidneys are connected up to uh this uh this uh, unconscious violinist and uh, or or this this ailing uh, violinist who's, whose kidneys are not functioning and um and so then would it and then the question that she says well you know would it be wrong to unplug the violinist from your kidneys and then she says that uh this and she says of course then she's she's saying it would not be wrong to do that and then she says that it would uh, analogously in a, in a, in abortion what you're doing is you're removing the your 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 it's it's analogous to unplugging the, the violinist now when you unplug the violinist you're not intentionally killing him you're removing aid from him it's it's sort of like uh uh removing a ventilator from a from a intensive care unit patient so you yeah. you, you 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 remove the, you, you you decide to remove this burdensome treatment and then the side effect of what you do is is death but you're not intentionally killing him now i think that's what she's saying abortion is now some people would say well it is always necessarily you know it's necessarily intentional killing. but the way she set it up is she's trying to say at least she's trying to say that in some cases it's not intentional killing. She even says, Well, um uh, uh in the violinist's case you would not have the right to cut his throat. <laughs> you know, you would have a right to withdraw you know, to to disconnect him from your kidneys, but you would not have a right to turn around and cut his throat. So she's she doesn't use this language, but she's in effect saying that it's morally okay because it's a decision not to use burdensome means to preserve someone's life rather than an intentional killing.
1: So,
0: It's interesting. I was having this conversation with somebody a few months ago, actually. Me and Clinton, we did an outreach with Justice for All at UCLA back in May. And this question came up, actually. I was having a conversation with a student who said that Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument, there's a virtual consensus among philosophers that the argument is valid. Which uh, seems yeah. a little bit humorous, given that we're still debating over Aristotle and Plato's arguments. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, There, there.
3: There's nothing over which there's a virtual consensus among philosophers. So you can. All right. <laughs> <laughs> there's I mean,
0: no, yeah. There's philosophers who argue the truth doesn't exist. So.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, mean, I don't. You know, when they when they say that, it's sort of, you know, it's that's, you know, that's a that's that <laughs> raises suspicions right there. You know.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and well, and the one, question so hard. Did,
0: the one question that did come up that I kind of wanted to ask you about, um, and I asked you about this, uh, I think at least a few weeks ago, about the argument of forced organ donation. So the analogy that was given to me was that you wouldn't go to, you do have an intrinsic right to life, but you don't have the right to ask somebody else to donate their, say, their kidneys or their heart to replace to, for a kidney or a heart transplant that you need, even though you do have a right to life. And I think Thompson argues that a little bit, but... I think it's been more of a recent adaptation of her argument. Yeah.
3: Well, uh, uh, um, you mean a kidney transplant, not a, a heart transplant, right? But that would be a heart transplant it would be after I'm dead, or, or or it would kill me anyway. Right. You're talking about a kidney transplant. Yeah. I think the kidney transplant
0: yeah. is more the analogy.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah. The, the thing is, I think if you if you look at what the argument is, is saying okay, well. Uh, so uh, that's what they're that they're saying that I that that, that this that, that the mother or the father you know the, of course of course the, the father is usually ignored so they're talking about the mother and they're saying the mother has this child and then now then it, then, then they're saying that, well her carrying the baby to to term is supposed to be analogous to donating a kidney uh now i mean in some respects it's analogous uh uh but but the, the but then we'd have to sit, we have to sit down and say okay well, well what is it you know or or her decision not to carry the baby to term is that is that really analogous to a decision not to donate a kidney i mean in some respects it might be but uh I, I mean, if she decides not to if she decides not to donate the kidney, she doesn't do anything to the other person, right?
1: Yeah. She's,
3: she she decides not to do something that would be very burdensome, right? If she decides not to donate a kidney, and here we're we're talking about okay, well, deciding not to carry the baby to term. So removing the baby, I suppose, would be removing the baby. of Uh. In order to avoid doing this burdensome thing, which is carrying the baby for 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 nine months or however many months, you know, after let's say they find out after a month, so it'd be eight months, I guess. Um, well, I think we just have to ask ourselves those two situations. Yes, they are in some respects similar. I mean, in some situations, the the mother might say, "Look, here's a burdensome thing. I, I you know, I'm I'm being asked to do something that's burdensome." And and no one, you know, that we don't have to, it's certainly true that pregnancy can be burdensome, but uh, uh, is it analogous to donating the kidney? I mean, or, you know, to, are we talking about donating the kidney to my son or daughter, or are we talking about t- donating the kidney to to a stranger, or... We're talking about the law. So, so, so the, the way it's set up, it's usually forcing somebody to donate a kidney, and then that's usually you know. But here we're talking about the baby's already there, and and here we're we're talking about okay, so cutting the baby out, uh, which causes the baby's death. Uh, so, so I, I think the way you run the thing is that the what the woman has to ask herself is does she have an obligation to do this to do this thing that is burdensome in order to save the life of her own child
1: hmm.
3: and is it the, so the, so that means you have to we have to ask the case is it the case that a, a mother and a father have a special responsibility to their child to undertake certain burdens okay. And I think the answer to that is yes, they do. They have a special responsibility to uh, to undertake certain burdens. Now, do they have? Does she have a responsibility to uh, do something that's going to cause her death? Well, then that would be, you know, that would be another, you know, that would be a that would be a tougher question. But almost never we're we talking about that. If we yeah. were talking about that, then I think we're talking about removing the baby would be an indirect killing and then then i think you might that that might be an analogy there you might say well okay i'm causing this person's death i'm the harm that i'm avoiding is a death then it might there then there might be a fairness there i think there's still a question about maybe am i required to even make a sacrifice even to the point of death for my for my child but but if but but it's still it, it could get close when you're talking about that. But if you're not talking about a comparable harm, uh, so what they' what they're saying, in effect, they're saying that that I could remove this baby in order to avoid a harm in order to avoid these difficulties. But are the difficulties that I'm causing this baby of the same order as the difficulties that I'm avoiding? And I think the answer is no, they're not. The difficulties I'm avoiding are not like usually death they're not you know, the difficulties I'm avoiding are not nearly as bad as the difficulties I would be causing this child by removing moving him or her prematurely and we're doing we're we're talking about removing this child and causing his death this child being my child. To whom I have a special responsibility. So, you know, so I know uh, that, yeah I think I think the thing is to bring it into okay well in what there are certain respects in which it's analogous there are other respects in which it's not analogous and it comes down to the question I think is there there's uh, uh, the the woman is being asked to do something that is burdensome, but she's do, but she's asked to do something burdensome in order to avoid causing a much worse burden to this child. And the child we're talking about is her child. You know, I, so, so those are I the two know. things. I think one is the the harm that, that would, that's being caused the child is much worse than the harm that she's avoiding. And then the other thing is that this is her, this is her own child, so she has a special responsibility to that child. You know, those are the two those are two key things i think in that, in that in that in that on that issue with with the thompson argument yeah
0: i would think that even further uh, to take it even a step further even if we don't agree that we have special obligations to our children we at least have an obligation not to kill them
3: yeah um, yeah i think that's 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 yeah i mean the the yeah i mean it, let's say you 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 know a, a guy gets guy gets say a guy marries a woman who already has you know three children they're not his children but so or let, let's say he's going out with this, this this woman who's been married before and she has three children and he's going out with her and he goes over to the house and he's he's smoking and 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 then, and then he's told well look if you continue to smoke you're going to kill these children <laughs> or you're going to really cause them you're going to make them sick even okay well he has an yeah. obligation not to not to make them sick, so he should you know he should not you know he should not in other words he has an obligation not he he has an obligation to avoid causing harm to them even if he's not intentionally causing harm to them and uh and then and the question is well you know uh, when is it obviously wrong it's obviously wrong for him to continue to smoke if it's making them sick because the discomfort that he's escaping from smoking is 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 not nearly as bad as the harm he's causing them, which is they're, they're getting sick. So but so you know, we have to you know, is the harm is the harm that is causing abortion comparable to the harm that the person is avoiding by not carrying the baby to term. And I think the answer is almost always no, they're not comparable right but i do think the special responsibility thing is also relevant because i think uh i mean i think i think it is something we need to bring this point out maybe not everybody's going to agree with it but i think it can be argued out uh is that uh, uh mothers but also fathers have special responsibility to their children and the father if The father finds out that you know he has a well. If a guy finds out that he has a child, he might he has some special responsibility to that child. He can't just go off and act as if he doesn't have a child. He he may have to uh, keep uh, he may have to get a part time job, or he may have to uh, not go you know not pursue his the, the the career that he wanted to before. You know he may have to keep this job that he really doesn't like because he has a special responsibility to his child. And I think that and I think the basis for that is a kind of biological connection there's a kind of special union we have with our children which 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 is brought out i mean the, i mean we we are aware of that in other contexts you know when, when you know because we, we, we when um it makes a difference which ba- you know when the woman goes in and she's uh, uh um, she 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 goes into the hospital and she has a baby. They, it makes a difference which baby they give her to take home, right? She wants to make sure she gets the baby that she carried, that she conceived and that she carried. Hmm. <laughs> so the biology does make a difference.
0: There are a lot of movies and TV shows that have come out of that of accidentally mixing a babies at birth.
3: Yeah, right, yeah. But that Just means that of- we are aware that that biological connection – that, that, that union, there's a, there is a special, I mean, there is a kind of special union that, that, that both a father and a mother has to the child, uh, and that's the basis of the special duties that we have. I think,
0: I think you make the point really well in your book when you point out there's a line in there, I'm not entirely sure where it is, I think it's in this chapter, where you talk about as human beings we have a relational nature and that we relate to other human beings. I mean... The slogan, the saying, no man is an island, I think uh, sums up really well, is that we do have obligations to other human beings, even if we don't want to have that obligation to them. Kind of also, I think I asked you about this a while back, in regards to the forced organ donation analogy. I think it's Dr. Bernard Nathanson would use the example of a woman who gave birth to a child, and the child can only survive on her breast milk for a time. And even though the woman might not raise the child throughout the rest of the child's life, she at least has an obligation to keep the child alive for a brief period of time until someone else can step in to fill that gap.
3: Right, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, she has an obligation to, at the very least, not starve the child to death.
3: Yeah. Well, the, the other thing is, I mean, the, the, look, the, the question when 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 people ask, okay, forced organ donation – now that's I mean that's a loaded I mean it's first of all you're not now you're not talking about the actions of the person donating the organ you're talking about some third party forcing that yeah so the first the first question here is of course, of course they're they're you know they may be talking about the law but uh, but but the first the first question is the, is the ethical question. Uh, if I find out that my child needs an organ, do I have an obligation to give that organ? Well, I, might, I'm, I really might have an obligation to do that. Now, should the state enforce that? That's another question. That's a separate question. Usually the state doesn't get, I think the state does not, I don't think the state should get involved unless someone is doing something physically to another human being to cause them harm. Now, that does occur in, a, in, in, in abortion it doesn't occur if someone decides not to have a kidney you know not to donate a kidney so 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 the two are with respect to the law there's a diff there there can be a diff, even even if ethically they may not be they may be very similar with respect to the law they're going to be different because the law is really only going to intervene when you have one person physically doing something to another person now that does occur in abortion but it does not occur if, you know, say the, the the parent decides not to donate a kidney to his child. Maybe he ethically should have done that, but the state's not going to to intervene when you're talking about him, when you're not talking about, you know, uh, you know, the 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 parent actually physically doing something to 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 cause harm to that baby, to the, to to his child. Does that make right. sense? In other words, I think the analogy. I mean, in other words, the the the, the forced the forced organ donation they're bringing in something that's extrinsic to the to, to 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 the to the ethical issue and and there's something about uh there's, there's there's a good reason why the why the state should not force organ donations even in those situations in which some you know one person may have a moral obligation to give another person a a, 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 you know, a non vital organ so I mean, my so, brother. If if my brother had a had needed a kidney, I might very well be morally obliged to 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 donate my kidney. But the state. But that's another. But but here, because of the the way uh, kidney donation works, and and you know, uh, I wouldn't be physically harming him. You know, wouldn't be you know, uh, causing you know his you know ripping him apart. Uh, uh, by not donating his kidney so so they, that, that would be you know the state's not going to intervene and, and and compel me to donate his organs donate my my uh, my kidney to him, but that's not right. the same thing you know, the state still should protect small babies from from these uh from these babies and from 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 the abortionists who are who are going to be ripping them, ripping them to shreds even even if they're asked to do so by their parents.
0: Kind of moving on a little bit. Also, uh, thank you for the explanation. That really helped. It's been, that question's been bugging me actually for the last several months. So, kind of moving on to the final yeah. chapter of the book, where you talk about the consequentialist arguments and they're kind of utilitarian arguments um, yeah. Yeah. in regards to abortion. And so, for example, I've heard this one. It's kind of I'm starting to hear it a little bit more that even though abortion it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, and that's what elective abortion does. Yeah. In a utilitarian sense, since the child is probably going to live a life of suffering anyways, they're born, say, into a very lower class family, and they're not going that they're going to suffer anyways. Maybe they're born into a single parent household, or the parents are drug users, or whatever. And there's a very big appeal to pity that comes up with these. But and I think it's uh, C. Stanley Lowell who makes the argument that abortion would be in the child's best interest, is that it would be better off to not exist than to exist and suffer along with it.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well you uh yeah that's uh that, that, that's 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 there's a, there's a couple of things there i think um when we start singling out these people and then saying that their quality of life is going to be so low that it's just not worth living uh the uh i think that uh First of all, when we're talking about the other end of life, we're talking about older people, handicapped people. You know, you take some handic, you know, some 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 severely handicapped person that uh, these philosophers might say, well, gee, that is not a life worth living at all. But those people, if they're asked about it, they're almost all, you know, they're they're almost always going to say, no, I want to, I, I still want to live. So. In other words there's a there's usually there even when you're talking about at the other end of the spectrum and they've got you know they, 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 they're 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 facing a future where they're you know filled with pain and a great deal of difficulties and so forth uh, when they're asked, they usually want to continue to live despite the fact that other philosophers are going to say oh their quality of life is so low it's not oh. worth living i mean that that's one point now then if you bring it out. And, and you talk about a, 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 a newborn, you know, talk about a, a, a newly conceived human being, and you don't. And it's just it's just mind boggling to think that you could make that kind of uh, judgment and <laughs> that kind of calculation. Yeah. The the other thing is that it's ignoring the good of life. It's ignoring all of these goods. It, it's, it, it, it's 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 uh, it's it's engaging in the kind of calculation I think that. Uh, uh, that 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 that, that uh, I think consequentialism can never really deliver. Uh, it's trying to measure things that can't be measured uh, uh, against one another. So so you're saying, well, you know, th- this this person's non, you know, they're saying this person's non-being versus this person's being. And how are they going to calculate those, even begin to calculate those? In order to do any kind of job, even from their standpoint, in order to do any kind of halfway, uh, you know, half-efficient way of doing this, they'd have to have a, some kind of idea about all the goods and all the bads in this, this person's whole life. And then they'd have to subtract all the, you know, they'd have to subtract the goods from the bads and say, well, it's it's an overall net bad. And then they're going to have to, con, you know, and say that that well, that's therefore the overall net bad is worse than 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 his not being at all. I mean, the, the whole thing is, is is ridiculous. I think, you know, they, you know they, they have no idea about what the goods. They line up all the goods. Of this person's life, they have no idea what those goods are in, the, in you know, whatever the span of this person's life, or 70, 80 years, and they're gonna they're gonna line up to do a halfway efficient utilitarian job. They'd have to have some kind of idea about what all the goods would be, all the evils, all the bad things that happen to this person, and then be able to compare measure them against one another. They can't they can't even know what the goods are and what the bads are. Uh, going to be then they they have no even if they could know what the goods are and what the bads are how are they going to really measure those against one another I, that that's it's it's all very uh it's all it's all i think uh uh masking a mere emotional uh uh judgment
0: it's interesting um i think it's in your book you mentioned it is that
3: really you have to have
0: you'd have to have uh divine powers in order to even begin to start an exercise like that of knowing yeah, yeah, yeah. what that future is going to be like. And, I mean, and ironically, it, it doesn't even seem like a very pro-choice view because you're taking away any choice that someone could make from them by killing them instead of making letting them make choices about their own life, in a sense. I've also heard it uh, described sort of as an act of mercy. It's like a mercy killing. And I think that this partially, I hear this a lot from other college students, and I think it might yeah. just be because the, the mindset on a lot of secular universities is, Oh the United States is such a that western culture excuse me Western culture as a whole is so bad and so oppressive and everything that you're better off not living in certain circumstances
3: yeah so. but that that's a, that's i and I think that's a that's a really an emotional reaction i mean yeah uh but one thing i mean uh what they might be doing i I think very often when people uh talk about a quality of life being so low it's not worth living. They're 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 treating what's valuable as if it's just a set of experiences. So, if you ask me, okay, did you have a good day or did you have a bad day? I say, well, basically, I, oh, I had a really bad day, meaning I felt. You know, sort of. I, I'm I'm kind of. I, I might say, well, I had a bad day, meaning, I felt bad today. But if you ask, if you really want to do the utilitarian, I mean, the, what the utilitarian is supposed to do is measure the goods and the bads versus each other. Now, it's not just a question of feelings, though. It's, 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 yeah, even one day, I mean, this is what's what's what sort of <laughs> what revealing about this. Even if you just take one day and say, okay, what happened to me today? Okay, well okay, let me see, I, I, read, I read for a couple of hours and I learned, you know, maybe like two or three things that were interesting. Uh, and, you know, so I, so I have two or three new truths or new acts of knowledge. And then, well, but then I, you know, I, I ate something that made me sick and then I hurt my knee, okay, so I've got being sick as sort of a, a harm to my health Hurt, hurt knee. That's harm to my health. Okay, so if we took even even that kind of simple, he say, "Well, I, I I learned two things. That's in the column of good, and I hurt my knee and I got sick. That's in the column of bad. But how can we measure those against one another? Now, is that I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, is that a, a net good and net bad? You, you can't even tell. You can't measure. Uh, you can't measure two acts of knowledge versus Two negative uh, uh, health events. I mean, how you you know they're just two different kinds of categories. So even if you're talking about one day, I don't even think it makes sense. Much less a whole lifetime.
1: Um, So so I think
3: it's a it's it's a kind of a. Sometimes it's 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 ignoring of the real goods and bads in, in people's lives and just looking at their the quality of their experiences. You know, is, are, this, are these the kinds of experiences I would like? And, and at other times, I, I think it's also ignoring all of these other other goods like lives and, and, and knowledge and health and so forth.
2: When uh, many pro-life authors write about an ethical worldview that, under, that undergirds someone's abortion choice views, usually the ethical viewpoint they respond to is moral relativism. But uh, yeah. in your book, you, you decided to write about utilitarianism. So I was just curious if you view yeah. utilitarianism <laughs> as a greater challenge to the pro-life view or how you would view utilitarianism as opposed to moral relativism Relative. when it comes to grounding a proportion a choice position.
3: I guess maybe if I do a third edition, I should have a chapter on on relativism because <laughs> because, because maybe relativism is yeah. equally <laughs> – <laughs> equally as bad as your consequentialism yeah yeah i guess you know w- when i when i read the book i was really th- i was really thinking about uh, I, w- I was looking at um, sort of professional philosophical papers and mm. and then in, in the professional philosophical papers it's usually you, you, those you know, they usually they're usually there aren't really that many uh defenders of of uh, of relativism uh, ethical relativism in I mean there are some you know but but not very many yeah. so 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 uh uh but uh, i think uh on on uh you know uh, uh certainly when, when when i teach in class as so a world i mean i think relativism is a big 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 uh issue and hmm. so uh so yeah I, I i think it's i don't know whether it's uh worse than uh, you know whether <laughs> it's more of a threat than a relative uh, uh consequentialism, but i think they're both hmm. there yeah
2: Okay. So, once again, we've been live with Patrick Lee, and uh, we're actually drawing near to the end of our program. Pat, where can people find you online? Are there any other websites or books that you'd like to plug?
3: Uh, yeah, well, I have uh, I have a website uh, called PatrickLeeBioethics.com. They could
1: uh,
3: find some. I, I, I usually have a lot of you know short articles, or, well, short and long articles there, kind of. Hmm uh and i need to web- update it but i'll i'll update it in the next couple of days but uh uh that that's uh and then uh franciscan university there's usually uh, some um, videos and uh on that uh there there well there are some videos uh, on that so if you just google search by name and bioethics uh, the different things will come up you know, so and just, okay. just ignore all the all the uh, negative things said about the people People are <laughs> cursing me.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah,
2: yeah that uh, that comes with the territory, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm just kidding.
2: Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to uh, thank you for listening, and uh, I'd like to thank uh, Nathan for joining me for this interview and for setting up the interview. Uh, I'd also like to yeah. thank you again, Pat, for allowing us to interview you.
3: Oh well, it was, it's a pleasure. I hope, I hope we, yeah. Uh, I think we've covered some. some uh, we covered a lot of territory. I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so yeah. too. Uh, once again, yeah. Once again, uh, Pat's book is Abortion and Unborn Human Life. Uh, I would highly recommend it. It's a very accessible read regarding personal identity and personhood and the Aristotelian metaphysics that show how certain abortion choice arguments don't succeed in justifying abortion. So I highly recommend it. If you've enjoyed this interview, I would ask that you share it around Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent on social media. Rate and review us on on our Facebook page or on iTunes. And now this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week, on top of all the other work that I do as a professional pro-life advocate. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the live training Institute website and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account, and donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, I'm going to be joined again by Aaron and we're going to actually be talking more about bodily rights arguments, specifically the arguments from Judith Jarvis Thompson. And it's going to be the first of a two part series that we're going to do. Our second part will be on the rest of Thompson's argument. She presents some other thought experiments there. But next week, we're just, or on Sunday, we're just going to focus specifically on bodily rights arguments. So once again, uh, I'd like to thank Pat and Nathan for joining me, and I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.